Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Let's bring in Mark Chandler, shall we? Bannockburn Global Forex Chief Market Strategist and Managing Partner. Good morning to you, Mark. Your thoughts, your thoughts on what we've seen overnight from Chinese authorities. Just frame it for our, for our audience, please. So I would phrase it, I'd see a sort of a combination of what you and Lisa are saying. I sort of see the dollar had actually weakened in the last part of last week uh, after the tariffs were announced. So it was after the, after the little rally the dollar had on the back of the FOMC, we get the dollar sell-off last Thursday and Friday. And so I was one of the people that thought that the pullback of the dollar would have protected that 7.0 level on dollar RMB come early this week. But instead, I think that the Chinese, I think that they stepped away. They did two things, really, I think. First, they, the fixing for the dollar was 6.9, which was a bit uh, stronger for the dollar than many people had expected, given the recent pattern. And then we saw the forward, and then finally the CNH went above 7.0. And no sign from, of the PBOC protesting that. And then the spot CNH, the onshore RMB, went above 7.0. And I think to Lisa's point, once we have bu- this Pandora's box is open, because we don't know where, what's the next, where is it going to go now. People are talking 7.30, Well, let's be clear, the next, the next fix from the Chinese going into tomorrow, I think, is critical. So can mm-hmm. you anticipate what Chinese authorities will do after a day of pretty big weakness for the Chinese currency? It's hard to predict what the Chinese, I can't even pretend that I can predict what the Chinese are going to do, but uh, they did have a statement that I thought was very important, and they said something to the effect, I might not get it exactly right, but something to the effect that the 7.0 is not like an age that once passed you can't return to. So I think that what they in effect did was, it was more of a warning shot, that if the U.S. wants to go down this route, ending the tariff truce without even notifying the Chinese, having to read that in a tweet, if the U.S. insists on going down this route. China is prepared to just step away. They're prepared to take whatever the U.S. wants to hit with. Hit it with. Yeah. If that means 25% tariffs, that's what it means. Because at some point, once you put, make Chinese goods uncompetitive, it doesn't really matter where the tariff's at. It's uncompetitive. We'll have to find other substitutes for that. So I'm concerned that, that, this is, uh, that the U.S. is going to retaliate and the situation's going to escalate. I can't see how things can get better before, they get, before they're going to get worse, I and, think. And that, that, that seems to be what's being priced into the market. If Copper, Dr. Copper, down to the lowest since 2017. Uh, U.S. 10-year yields, the longest losing streak since 2012. I'm just wondering whether this uh, tolerance of the devaluation of the U.N. will hurt or help China because at this point, we don't even know about capital outflows. We don't know about uh, their purchasing power, their ability to stimulate their economy. What's your take? Yes, yeah, so I think that you know, for a while, many of us thought that the seven. The reason that the Chinese were were preventing further depreciation, despite what was happening to the economy, despite the interest rate differentials, they were holding up the RMB because. I think many of us assumed that they were thinking that they wanted to help Chinese companies move up the value-added chain. Fine, if trade is going to be less conducive, then they have to do more value-added to make their exports more competitive. And I think that the Chinese are reluctant to risk this uh, downward spiral that we saw like in 2015, lower RMB, lower stocks. And this is a very important time period. You know, know, we're about to celebrate, or China's about to celebrate the 70th anniversary of the revolution. 
And Americans take these kind of things with a big grain of salt. But I think that in other parts of the world, like in China, these kind of national holidays, national commemorations are very important. And I think that they're going to want to avoid uh, this downward spiral, these kind of headlines to undermine what would seem to be otherwise relatively good news. But Mark, that's something I actually do worry about this morning on a morning like this morning. I'm not worried about the Chinese engineering currency weakness. I think that comes with massive risks for the Chinese. And I'm not sure they want to play with fire. But that's not to say they can't make a mistake. There is this immense belief, this immense faith in the Chinese policymakers' ability to keep control. And it always strikes me as odd because back in 1516 they lost control and it took months and months and months to find stability in the Chinese economy and Chinese markets once again. Can this lead to a policy mistake? If you move away from constraining the currency to tolerating weakness, can it precipitate the kind of things that the Chinese are trying to avoid? I think that's the problem is these unintended consequences. I mean, that's why I point out that today, despite, the, uh, despite all the focus on China, it's actually Korea won that actually sold off more. And so the, the, uh, the unintended consequences, uh, the, uh, the chances for a policy mistake, not just in China, but in the United States and the way other countries respond to this, I think this is very important. We saw this with the, uh, the European release this morning, the composite PMI. And we see that and the large exporters in Europe have also been squeezed by this trade tensions. This is like bad news for the world, I think. So, Mark, before we let you go, it's going to be a busy session, perhaps a very, very busy week. What are you looking for as the session progresses this morning in New York? Well, I think, the, the, for me, the most important thing is going to be how the U.S. responds to what China's doing. Is I just don't see how Trump can back off now, how the U.S. can back off. And so whether it's the, uh, the press conference later today or some comment from another official, uh, I think people are going to be very eager to see, uh, sort of the, we're waiting for the other shoe to drop. And Mark Chandler, the US. great to catch up with you. What a busy week we've got ahead of us now. Bannockburn Global Forex Chief Market Strategist and Managing Partner. I'm really glad to bring in uh, Henrietta Trees to discuss this because, honestly, uh, she has decades of experience framing all sorts of policy issues. And and to me, this is the main question. So, Henrietta, uh, thank you so much uh, for coming in here and joining us. Uh, Aveda Partners, what do you think an escalation looks like? Thanks for having me this morning. Um, I think you're definitely looking at a political dynamic here more than an economic one. Now that the U.S. is exhausted, essentially its entire basket of 500 billion some odd worth of tariffs. And China has essentially done the same. Now they're going to be escalating in much more obvious political ways. Um, one of the anecdotes we heard from the administration early on in this trade war is that they laughed when other nations, including the EU um, and uh, China and, and Mexico and Canada, they laughed when they, when they put on tariffs on our agriculture exports because the president believes that the farmers are firmly united behind him. And um, we're tracking polling data there very closely, but still it's about an 80% approval rating for the Republicans and pretty high through most of the Midwest and the farm sort of heartland area in support for this trade war. So I think as we escalate, it's going to get more into the realm of the politics, and we should expect the farmers to continue to get hit. Um, interestingly, speaking with Agriculture Committee staff, they were saying, you know, I don't care about the fourth list of tariffs going into effect. You know, this is the U.S.'s $300 billion basket because there's nothing else that China can do to us. They've already tariffed us, tariffed us to kingdom come. And so now China is essentially going a step further, still hammering that same, that same old saw, which is, 
hit the farmers all day, every day. And I expect that's what they'll continue to do. Moving into manufacturing that might be in the Rust Belt would probably be a good next step. Yeah. So watching, um, you know, GM and Ford and seeing how they're being treated over in China, um, seeing how any of the activities that China can take to impact those guys would be you, the next step. So, Henrietta, this is this raises a really important point. If the escalation is more political than economic, are traders pricing in too much pessimism right now because there isn't that much more uh, that China retaliation can do to the U.S. economy? See, I think that that's a bit discounted because I don't think the market has fully appreciated the severity of the tariffs thus far. We have strong underlying economic data. And while earnings calls have started to come around and CEOs and CFOs are starting to talk about the trade war more succinctly, um, you're still seeing holdovers from the massive pull forward in inventories that businesses pulled off in the first and second quarter of this year, not to mention fourth quarter of last year. So I think there's still this lag that will continue to escalate and traders need to price into the market uh, going into September and even October. There's still these reports that, you know, maybe the White House is not serious about putting these tariffs on in September. That gives folks false hope. I mean, the market being down 320 320 points is, um, you know, getting there, in my opinion, starting to appreciate the severity of the situation. But there's room, in my opinion. Henrietta, just finally, I'd like you to talk about where the focus is on either side in the negotiations right now. The Chinese may well be focused on the pictures coming out of Hong Kong. The president may well be focused on the tragic news over the weekend of two mass shootings in 24 hours. Is the focus elsewhere and away from the trade talks as we begin a new trading week? Well, I think we have to be mindful that USTR is working on every single front. I mean, they're firing on all cylinders. We've got three separate cases with just the EU. They're trying to negotiate with Japan. Um, When I speak with um, senior officials and with folks in the Senate Republican Caucus or close with the administration, they believe firmly that China is on the brink of economic collapse. And so while the trade wars take a while, I think USTR Lighthizer is extraordinarily patient and he understands that these tariffs are the best tool that they have and it will not be immediate. And so I think that they believe the China issue is important, obviously, but there's plenty else percolating. As you point out, um, the domestic unrest, I think immigration and trade go hand in hand. So as we escalate with um, the trade war on China, expect immigration rhetoric to be exacerbated and the El Paso shootings uh, and the Ohio shootings obviously give us a clear example of that. So I think that uh, it serves the president's best interest to keep both immigration and the trade wars front and center. They work in tandem. Henrietta, great to catch up with you. Henrietta Trace there of Vader Partners joining us on the latest moves from China. At the epicenter of the price action today, the Chinese currency, the yuan, dollar China through seven. Weighing in on all of this, I'm pleased to say joining us on the phone, Alan Ruskin, Deutsche Bank Securities Managing Director and Chief International Strategist. Alan, just walk me through quite simply how you're framing what happened in the last 24 hours for clients this morning. Um, yes, uh, John, it's, uh, it's been an interesting 24 hours. Uh, not a complete surprise after you know, the last announcement from uh, President Trump that uh, uh, tariffs would be raised on the you know, remaining 300 billion uh, imports that the uh, U.S. has from China. Um, 
that being said, uh, it, you know, China's actions didn't have to occur uh, immediately, i.e. they didn't have to actually let the currency go uh, immediately. So I think there's this perception out there in the marketplace that they've effectively weaponized the currency and that you know, what you have is a trade war which is now turning into you know, a genuine currency war. Obviously, we've just had some you know, comments from the PBOC just trying to dampen that down and saying they won't use the currency as a tool. But I think the proof of the pudding is in the eating, unfortunately. And you know, it looks very much to a lot of observers and probably to the U.S. administration as well, that they have actually used the currency as a tool. So, Alan, let's talk about whether you think that is the case. I'm never a big fan of the word weaponization. I think it's very loaded. Looking at the story this morning, they've certainly moved away from constraining the currency weakness. If they're now tolerating currency weakness, will that be perceived? Is that initially the objective of the Chinese authorities for that to be perceived as some kind of weaponization of the currency? Well, it certainly looked like that up until, you know, the latest comments that we've had from the PBOC, um, in so much as, uh, you know, I do feel like they could have held uh, the line in terms of, you know, the seven level uh, for a few weeks, perhaps, and separated the actions on the currency side from, uh, you know, the actions that we're seeing on the tariffs. Um, that being said, uh, the underlying pressures are clearly for dollar China to go substantially higher. So I think if they were going to hold the line, it was only going to be probably for a few weeks. And after that, I think they were going to start to run, run down reserves at a pace that was uh, you know, undesirable from the Chinese standpoint. And I think you know, it was inevitable that uh, seven was going to go uh, at least over the next few months. So, Alan, I guess let's just assume, as the market seems to be doing right now, that this is an intentional escalation and that we don't have a path back from here uh, that's an easy resolution. What does this look like? What is the playbook for both China going forward as well as the U.S.? Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's still open questions as to how China responds to the U.S. in other matters. I think there's, you know, question marks about, you know, have they genuinely stopped agricultural imports uh, from, you know, national entities? Uh, you know, those news reports are not entirely clear as well. So we need to see, you know, what other actions China comes up with, because I think that will then provoke a response from the U.S. side. Uh, on the U.S. side, you know, I think they will... Uh, almost certainly point to the latest adjustment we've seen on dollar China as as currency manipulation. Um, as I said, you know I think market forces are pushing in that direction regardless. Um, how the U.S. responds thereafter is not obvious. Uh, they could, for example, intervene. Um, so they could buy uh, you know the Chinese currency and sell dollars. But I think if that's unilateral action and it's done against the you know the de- desires of the Chinese, then that's not going to be terribly effective. Um, a word Worst case scenario would be the U.S. perhaps even sort of threatening to raise tariffs more the more the Chinese allow their currency to weaken. So that really gets into a pretty ugly scenario. And we've had several reports over the weekend suggesting that the advisers around the president did not want him to tweet what he tweeted at the back end of last week, and he still did it. We know from a couple of weeks ago, a couple of Tuesdays ago, there was a meeting within the White House about intervening directly in the currency market. Reportedly, there was a proposal from Pina Navarro about weakening the dollar by, say, 10 percent. The president pushed back. Do you actually think direct intervention may well be on the table still for this White House? 
Um, look, it's it's uh, impossible to rule out, say, some sort of you know brief foray into into the foreign exchange market. I think what would uh, what I think authorities would quickly find is that this is a difficult market to push around. And, you know, even, for example, if they wanted the dollar weaker, would the dollar necessarily weaken or how many billions of dollars of sales would be needed to actually, uh, you know, achieve end goals? I think these are all sort of question marks that I think mostly are answered on the, on the, on the side of suggesting that intervention is not going to be effective. So I think, you know, that's why uh, the president's advisors are, are suggesting, well, you know, that's not a good idea. There are other arguments, of course, not least, you know, if you try to drive your currency weaker, it's disruptive for asset markets in general. It'll be disruptive for the U.S. bond market, for the U.S. equity market, etc. So I think, you know, there, there are a lot of good reasons why you don't really want to drive your currency weaker. So, Alan, currently there's a lot of fear certainly baked into markets or being baked into markets. There's a question of how much that accurately reflects what the economic readout will be from this. And I'm wondering, do you think that there's a real possibility that an escalating trade war will cause some sort of either recession, global downturn that is not being fully priced into the market right now? Yeah, I think uh, there's uh, a level of disruption that could come from this that is not being fully priced into the market. I mean, I think if, even if you look at you know past uh, episodes where tariffs were an issue, where this trade issue reared its head, uh, you saw the equity market, the U.S. equity market in particular, uh, fall quite sharply. Uh, the adjustments we've seen relative to those past episodes is still quite small. So it's, it's certainly possible that you could see a much larger movement in, in, in a risky assets in general, and uh, that will unwind some of the easy financial conditions that we've seen partly helped by the Fed. You know, as to whether it sort of pushes the U.S., for example, into recession, I think that's, you know, uh, we're, not, we're not nearly at that stage yet, but we're at a stage where certainly this is consistent with the ongoing global slowdown and a US slowdown. Alan, let's try and wrap things up with a bit of a guidebook, a playbook for the next 24 hours, shall we? And maybe a little bit of a mini clinic over how the Chinese currency is managed. I've always thought the fix is a, uh, an unfortunate phrase because it implies it is something that perhaps it is not. But Alan, just walk us through for our listeners that might not be too familiar with what happens with the Chinese currency and foreign exchange markets every single day. Just how they do manage this currency, what the fix actually is and what you're looking for later tonight. Yeah, John, I wouldn't make too much of the fix, really, because I think what you're seeing is that uh, outside of the fix, uh, you're seeing much larger adjustments by the free market. Uh, some of this led by the CNH market. So for listeners, that's really you know a market that's effectively Chinese currency offshore, the uh, so Hong Kong-based uh, Chinese currency. Um, but uh, and we're seeing a bit of a gap develop between CNY and CNH. But on the whole. Uh, this is uh, a, a indication that we're seeing from uh, much larger adjustments occurring across the board between CNY and CNH. So, you know, what we're seeing is something which is being tolerated by authorities, uh, independent of where they may be fixing the currency at any one moment uh, in time. Alan, do you think there is pressure, though, because of optics and the way it will be perceived to do something different with the fix later this evening going into tomorrow? 
Possibly. I think uh, where the fix could be interesting is in uh, supporting the statements that we've seen from the PBOC now that they won't use the currency as a tool. Uh, if they try to attempt to, example, fix the currency below seven again, that would be you know interesting. It would be contradictory, uh, perhaps to you know everything we've just seen over the last uh, you know 12 hours or so. Uh, but it would at least be indicative of you know some genuine desire to limit the fallout uh, you know of the currency and the, and the weakness in the currency. Hey Alan, great to catch up with you as always to break down some of these foreign exchange moves. Alan Ruskin there, Deutsche Bank Securities Managing Director and Chief International Strategist. Let's bring in Lollytop Charlie, shall we? J-O-H-C-M, Senior Fund Manager. The Bloomberg Barclays Ag, that index on high yield, getting out to 400 basis points again, Lale. You have been defensive. You've been talking about the risk in this credit market. Are we seeing a reflection of that or just a reflection of Treasury yields dropping drastically lower and high yield not coming along for the party? I think it's the latter. Um, I think there's a little bit of a risk off in high yield, for sure. Um, look, 400 is still tight. It's still 100 something basis points tight year to date. Um, And I don't think the spreads are going to be cheap until we get to 500. So we will stay. uh, We will continue to stay defensive. So my question is, what's the catalyst to see further weakness here, further widening in credit spreads that would offset those lower rates? Because obviously uh, the yield is two components, right? The rate component and the credit spread, the risks uh, component. So what's the what's what's sort of the trigger here? I mean, it's you know at, at some point the credit will return to fundamentals. So if you think of the high yield, which it will have a different dynamics than the investment grade, which are the larger corporations. But if you think of high yield, look again, this is one earning season, and we're still going through it. The the numbers are not that great. Um, the leveraging has stopped. There are more companies missing numbers, um, and eventually, I think you know in high yield you do start pricing in actual credit risk. Well, but it, things are not that bad though, and this is what a lot of people point to that that companies are still doing okay and that you know perhaps they're not deleveraging but they're certainly not releveraging in some sort of dramatic uh, some sort of dramatic way in the high yield market perhaps investment grade more so so what do you say to people who push back and say you know what investors have shown restraint you have not seen runaway uh, rallies in the riskiest debt things are still solid well, it's really simple, actually. So I think of high yield spreads in two components. One is your credit risk um, compensation as a function of the default and the recovery rate. The other one is the liquidity risk premium. So that liquidity pre- risk premium, which is basically your average transaction cost over the cycle, is actually somewhere around 300 basis points over the last 25 years. When the markets gets really tight, people tr- price it as tight as 200 basis points. So. Can the spreads go another 100 basis points? Sure. If you always assume you can transact, then your bid-ask spread is going to remain very muted. But I think eventually vol is going to pick up and we're going to go back to 300 in, in spread. Liquidity premium, John, I, I love when we bring this up because it really highlights this sort of escalating fear that people have that when they go to sell, 
they won't be able to at the prices they have on their books. Well, and the problem is not many people are fearful of it. And I guess that is the issue because so many people think they can exit when they want to exit. They'll always get ahead of the herd, right? And that's, that's been a 10-year ne- bull that's market. Ne- that's never how it works, is we it? We have Larry? a younger generation now that has never gone through a bad period. Talk to me about that because I think it's really important. <laughs> I remember sitting down with uh, UBS's Andrea Rochelle. Of course, Andrea has since left the bank, but he was running the investment bank. And it was back in, I think it was 14, 15, and we were going into the first rate hike at the Federal Reserve and I said to him average age of the trading floor what do you reckon it is and he turned around to me and he said maybe early 30s something in and around that level I said how many of your guys and girls have seen a rate hike before he said many of them haven't I said is that a problem he said yes it's a big problem the rate hike cycle came they got used to seeing the bull market continue talk to me about that inexperience on trading Deslali <laughs> that still exists it certainly does I mean it's a function of I mean look I think wealth managers and investment banks it's like an accordion right so when the markets are really good you expand you buy you hire a bunch of people compensation goes up when when the markets gets a little bit tough compensation shrinks and the easiest way to do it you go you hire younger generation and then the experienced people they either had enough of these markets and they retire so it's just a natural cycle but you can even see it forget the um, the, the experience, but you can always see it also in the company analysis. You know, I think you, I can see some deals getting priced because people forget about the cash flow statement and, and high yield, which is critical. Just, just to sort of defend people who aren't old uh, or who haven't been through, <laughs> been through a cycle here. I mean, even people who are uh, who have been in the market have been penalized for their skepticism. The more skeptical you've oh, been over the past 10 years, the more you have lost money. So how much is this just also uh, at a certain point, people getting beaten into complacency by all of the central banks and by the fact that things have not gotten material worse I think I mean you know fair enough I think you have to believe you know whether things return to the mean or not I'm a believer that things eventually return to the mean sometimes it takes longer sure and we're in the you know investment management business we got to pay our investors their income um, so we will position accordingly in a way that you know if things go terrible we can still transact and we can capture the opportunity I mean that's what our job is and yeah. again you know that's the advertisement for active management as opposed to being passives and ETFs so I called um, I spoke to Pimco a couple of months ago and I remember Pimco telling me we want to be liquidity providers not liquidity demanders so we want to sit back from here and then when things start to get choppy step in just walk me through your strategy Lale how you deal with that idea your framework for dealing with the markets as you think they're going to evolve in the coming quarters. I have sympathy for that idea. I mean, I think it, it comes down to the vehicle you run. If you're running a daily liquid vehicle and you're going into less liquid assets, it just doesn't work. We've seen multiple examples of that. That is the traditional, what I call kind of the, you know, the, the liquidity illusion. Um, but if you're running private equity-like structure funds where you don't need immediate needs, Sure. Look, I think the simplest example I can give you, and I know I've st- stated the stat before, look at the debate that happened to the bank loan market in December. You know, bank loans is an odd instrument. They settle in seven days. So when you have aggressive redemptions continuously, what happens is you see a notable drop in price because most funds now have credit lines that they can tap to meet that daily liquidity. Uh, liquidity redemptions yeah. but eventually you have to sell aggressively if you're consistently getting redemptions bank loan outflows were 16 billion that's one percent of the u.s bank loan market and we saw a six percent drop in nav that's nothing one percent six percent drop in nav uh, I love, John, the idea of you calling up PIMCO. 1-800, hey, PIMCO, how's it going? Well, I actually phrased guys- it wrongly. I went to see them. I flew out 
I know. I remember back. that actually. It was it was a really good, uh, a really good. I, bunch I don't of have interviews. enough money to dial one eight hundred PIMCO. Let's be very clear. I think well, you need a certain amount of money to get to, that. We'll take you. We'll take you in our funds if you want to donate. To get that direct direct line in, I guess, Lale, I want to know when you talk about the pessimism that you have and the downturn that you're expecting in credit. How significant will it be? Because right now I'm looking at a 10.2% gain year to date in U.S. high yield bonds. I have, I have no idea. I mean, it depends what the circumstances are. The circumstances are changing by the day. I mean, I don't think anybody expected the second round of tariffs coming through. That's going to be felt more on the consumer. Um, and I know from my discussions on the consumer companies in high yield, look, on average, they turn their inventory about two times a year, right? So a lot of the inventory has been pre-ordered for this year. You won't even see it in the numbers. So that's the other thing. Like, there's a time lag in this, so it will really hit next year. You know, you had 10, 25% hit on your gross prop margins, and you're not really deleveraging, and many of them don't generate much free cash flow. You know, the credit risk has to reprice. Michelle C. Lale, great to catch up with you. As always, what a morning to have Lale Topcholi with us. JOHCM Senior Fund Manager, breaking down some of the moves in credit and beyond in fixed income in equity this morning. Right now, we are looking at a pretty ugly market, which raises a question of how much China's allowance of the UN to go above seven per dollar, how much that disrupts existing positioning among hedge funds, how much, uh, how quickly people can adapt to this. I'm so pleased to say that we have Mark Connors with us joining uh, from Credit Suisse. He is Global Head of Prime Brokerage Portfolio and Risk Advisory. Mark, I love getting your insights because you have real uh, good on the ground feelers out as to how hedge funds are positioning, how they are thinking. And I'm just wondering, heading into this weekend when China did make this move or allow this move to happen, how are people positioned? How are hedge funds kind of uh, looking for things to progress? Uh, thank you, Lisa. And uh, Maureen, you're, you're right. It's an ugly tape. And hedge funds had felt this earlier because they came into the weekend and actually into the month defensively positioned. And defensive, we mean that their whole footprint, their leverage profile, was at a bottom decile level on a two-year look back. So quant funds, the very leveraged active um, trade uh, profile, they've taken in their leverage profile because they weren't seeing the ball. They weren't seeing the ball since as early as 2018 when very high-profile hedge funds were saying, what's happening with the market with value and momentum in June of 18? And I mention that because that was when we first had that tariff-initiated uh, talks. So we're talking about is how macro impacts, especially the CNY, as it relates to low growth, impacts market dynamics, um, and hedge funds took down their positioning because of it. So they saw it, and now the rest of the market's seeing it. So, Mark, when you look across the spectrum of hedge funds, what are some of the strategies right now that are attracting uh, the most inflows? Well, right, so our cap services team would, would say macro. Um, strategies. There's definitely some. Um, so the hedge fund industry, we used to say, well, are you long, short? Are you macro? Are you uh, event? Those were kind of 90s uh, uh, indoctrinated or um, uh, created funds. But Paul, they've changed now to say a large platform will say, listen, we have a multi-strat and we have an event. But you know what we have? We have this one great idea. Do you want to fund it? It's called a fund of one. 
So the industry is maturing. It's becoming more of a business, and it has bespoke offerings. They're not just saying, come into our big commingled. It's becoming more of a complex asset management um, entity, and, and that's what's happening. So the result of that, you know, all, that, all those words I just said is the industry is consolidating, and the bigger getting bigger because the market's tough. It's tough to make money. So you have to change your business plan. And that's what's happening. Mark, I love it. The, just all those words that I was saying, this is what it means. It's getting <laughs> tough out there. Yeah. I mean, Mark, honestly, uh, I, I'm trying to figure out whether this is sort of indicative of the fact that markets don't have that much more to fall because there is a feeling that the Fed is going to support things. And because heading into this, people were de sort of positioned defensively. It's not like this is going to disrupt some sort of consensus trade. What's your view on that? The hedge funds will not be the sellers in this market, and they have not been for the last several days. So you're dead on there. However, like we saw in Q4, the sellers in October were not hedge funds. They were long only. So if we're punching to new levels in the CNY, which means that it, it, it's, it's an area that we haven't explored before north of seven, um, they're doing it because we think the trajectory, I think that the trajectory of global growth is lower which means more revisions to earnings models or expectations. So let's take a step back. I'm going to point you to one graph, Lisa, that you and I always talk about, or I always ask you to, to look at and, and we share, is the U.S. 10-year versus Bund. So to me, that at like a it hit 280 when Trump was elected, it's, it's the spread between the minus 50 Bund and the, and the 175 10-year. And it's compressed. It used to be wide, which meant that the U.S. has more inflation, more growth, and it's come in. And the point is, we're one water table. So if the U.S. thinks that they're different and there's exceptionalism, they have to think again. We are migrating to the trajectory of Europe and Asia. Okay, so Mark, this is a really important point, and it raises a concern that a lot of people have, which is the U.S. is heading negative just the way that Europe and Japan are. Do you think that is plausible, that we're going to see negative treasury yields in the next few years? A 1% 10-year is a, is a probability, not a possibility. So we'll start there is a likelihood. Right. And we'll have that sooner than later. That's a big call. That is a big call. Yeah. So so it's interesting, Mark. I mean, so what are you seeing? You mentioned the consolidation in the hedge fund business. It seems like, you know, it, it's all come down to the citadels and the 0.72s of the world. And uh, it, is that good for the industry, the consolidation we're seeing? It's necessary. In order to, to play today's game, you have to achieve scale. You have to invest in technology. You have to invest in data. And you have to invest in um, a new core of people with skills. And as I said, you then have to leverage your existing platform for new products, which means business development people. Uh, six people uh, or 12 people in, in a room can't do that alone. It doesn't mean that those animals don't exist and won't continue to exist, but they won't drive growth in the industry. And they do serve a purpose. There are, na there are niches that are served by smaller firms. So but again, that's a niche. So, Mark, okay, so you said that treasury yields heading to 1%, 10-year treasury yields heading to 1% is a probability, not a possibility. Uh, you see convergence in rates around the world. I'm wondering whether this happens independent of another recession or whether it, a recession is seeming increasingly likely. And so that part, I, I, I can't speak to sort of out of my domain of expertise. The, well, is the, that what the, people the are reason, positioned for? People are positioned for a convergence of growth sort of approaching the term, you know, terminal velocity. Is it a recession? I wouldn't say people are not positioned for recession now, um, but they are positioned for 
a convergence of growth approaching zero. And the Fed is, is as well. They, they're trying to redefine our star. They, they're absolutely changing the way they um, execute their mandates. Uh, and that's come from Bullard over the past 18 months pretty clearly. So if they don't know where our star is, um, people are going to look to technical and, and sentiment data and back to the 10-year bond spread. It's, I think, averages less than 100 basis points over the past 15 years. And if we go back to that mean, the 10-year will be at 50 basis points. So 1% using historical patterns is not a very difficult target to hit. Mark Connors, always fascinating uh, having hearing your thoughts on the hedge uh, fund business. Mark Connors, Credit Suisse Global Head of Prime Brokerage Portfolio and Risk Advisory. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.